And we welcome you to the Wednesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. It's going to be all food today, start to finish. And in part one of today's program, I am really excited to be connecting with Tanaya Darlington, who uh, is known quite affectionately by all kinds of people as Madame Fromage. She is one of our country's leading experts on the marvelous world of cheese. And uh, she has written a marvelous book called Adventures in Cheese, How to Explore It, Pair It, and Love It, From the Creamiest Breeze to the Funkiest Blues. And as we read this book, we come to a, a better understanding of just how enormous and complex and endlessly fascinating is the world of cheese. And she takes us on quite an odyssey that is uh, really quite entertaining and illuminating. Uh, She is by day a a, uh, professor of English, but uh, she spends uh, nearly all of her waking hours otherwise uh, teaching all kinds of different people about cheese and tells her own story about her relationship with cheese, if you will, uh, in, 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 in such captivating fashion. I really love this book, Start to Finish. It is published by Workman Publishing, again titled Madame Fromage's Adventures in Cheese, How to Explore It, Pair It, and Love It, From the Creamiest Breeze to the Funkiest Blues. Uh, and Tanaya Darlington, we welcome you to the morning show. Greg, thank you so much for that fabulous introduction. Well, I really have enjoyed this. I must confess right off the bat that I am not particularly a fan of cheese. And once upon a time, I could barely even stomach the thought of just popping a piece of cheese into my okay. mouth. To me, so I'm going to tell you about my conversion experience, and then and then have you. Share your own story. But, I mean, once upon a time, and I suppose it was partly because I wasn't eating good cheese, um, to me, just a piece of of kind of room temperature cheese just felt like solid sour milk. Mm. I mean, that's what it felt like to me. And Mm -hmm. where the first time I really ate cheese and enjoyed it was on a food tour of Greenwich Village, my wife and I. And the last stop on that food tour was Murray's... Uh, shop, which is one that you mentioned as one of the major places to purchase cheese in in the country. And I think they have something like 400 different kinds of cheese. And, And so at the end of this brief tour of Murray's, we were each given then a platter of five different cheeses uh, to sample as they talked about each one. And I thought, we paid good money for this food tour. I'm still hungry. I am not going to skip these cheeses, even though I really had to sort of force myself. And I loved it. It was it was really, it was sort of a conversion experience. I never realized just how delicious cheese could be. And uh, so uh, I have been a a halting explorer of cheese ever since. And uh, that's one reason why I really uh, loved your book. You tell in some ways a similar story, not that you had the aversion to cheese that I did, but you had a really eye-opening kind of world-altering experience uh, in a similarly marvelous uh, cheese shop. Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, in 2009, I moved to Philadelphia, and I didn't know a single person. I was moving there from Wisconsin, a great cheese state, as you know. And so someone had given me the address to a cheese shop called De Bruno Brothers, 
from an old world Italian shop with salamis hanging down from the ceiling and huge wheels of cheese on every surface. Um, and I went in there actually looking for a Wisconsin cheese called Pleasant Ridge Reserve. And the guys behind the counter said, wow, if you know that cheese, you must really love cheese. And we've got some other things here for you to try because uh, 10 in the morning on a Tuesday, no one else else is in the shop. And they said, have you ever tried a really great piece of Roquefort cheese? And I hadn't. I'd only ever had Roquefort crumbles. And so one of the guys handed me this kind of gooey, oozy blue cheese, Roquefort from France, caught me by the Carl's family. And it was the first time I had tasted real French blue Roquefort right off of the wheel. And it was extraordinary. So strong, but also sweet, salty, and with all these vegetable flavors and mineral notes. And those two guys, Hunter and Zeke, became my cheese mentors and uh, ended up going to De Bruner Brothers weekly for about five years, eating every cheese in the shop and blogging about it under the name Madame Fromage. Mm-hmm. So that was my conversion experience. And it sounds like, you know, as you, you, you kind of mentioned that encounter at a couple different points in the book, and uh, one of the things that was so exciting was not just that cheese that you ate but and how delicious it was, but also the stories that, uh, that the guy behind the counter was able to tell you about exactly where and exactly how this particular cheese was, was created. And it sounds like, you know, that was as, as important as the delicious taste. That's it. I mean, for that particular cheese, they said, do you know, this is the only Roquefort maker that still bakes homemade rye bread, allows the rye to get moldy. They scrape the blue mold off of the baked rye bread and they stir that into the milk. That's originally how blue cheese was made. And uh, I I had no idea. I've been a blue cheese lover my whole life, uh, but I had no idea that the blue mold in the cheese originated from the same blue mold that just grows on bread when you leave it sitting out. So that to me was fascinating. In fact, last summer I did a Roquefort road trip to visit Carl's Roquefort, to visit those particular makers and meet the family because it had had such a large impression on me. Hmm. So the stories behind cheese are fascinating. <laughs> it's incredible. And, of course, that is what uh, this book is all about, and um, I'm so excited to, to explore it. Uh, in, in what way did you find opportunities to explore this in sort of a wider way. I mean, for instance, when it came to the matter of blogging about cheese or talking about cheese and and leading tours, uh, I mean, how were you able to sort of make your way into this world? That's such a good question. Well, honestly, I thought I would blog for maybe six months about cheese because I wanted to, you know, understand the blogging platform and cheese just seemed like a fun thing to write about at the time. But I can remember that within a few months, I started hearing from cheesemakers. For example, I heard from this guy in northern Scotland named Rory Stone. I had written about his cheese called Strathton Blue. He said, you know, I got this lovely email. Dear Zanaya, I Googled myself and I, I found that you had written about my cheese and I'm so delighted. I wanted to invite you. If you ever come to Scotland, you know, please come. 
you'd be a welcome guest at our home and I'll show you around the farm. And I, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Like from writing a blog, I was hearing from someone in Scotland with an invitation to learn about, you know, blue cheese making. And I just felt like blogging about cheese began to open all kinds of doors. After I'd been in uh, the writing business for a while, I led two groups to southern Italy to learn about making burrata. That was in Puglia. And from there, I got contacted by a woman in Manhattan who said, I want to start a company called Cheese Journeys, taking people to the great cheese regions of the world. You know, are you interested in joining me? So we've worked together now for 10 years co-hosting cheese tours, mostly around Europe, and that has taught me so much. So I, mm. I would say for anybody who really wants to learn about cheese and actually go into cheese caves and meet makers and sit with them in their kitchens, you know, drinking coffee and trying their experiments that are underway, um, you know, taking a food tour like that is an incredible eye-opener. Mm. I want to circle back to uh, your experience at this uh, place called the Bruno Brothers in uh, in Philadelphia, a place that my brother frequented when he lived in Philadelphia oh. and speaks fondly of it. So one, nice. of the, one of the things you talk about in, in that is that you say something about how I very soon began carrying a cheese notebook when you would, <laughs> when you would revisit uh, the shop. So I, I'm, I'm would love to know about what what prompted you to do that and what sorts of things you would write in your so-called cheese notebook. Oh, my gosh. I wish I could show you because I have a couple of wine boxes, wooden wine boxes, that are just loaded with all of these little notebooks full of my cheese scribblings from the last decade. Well, before I moved to Philadelphia, I worked as a journalist in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was always carrying a reporter's notebook around. And so even though I transferred, you know, to teaching at a St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, I still was carrying a notebook around. So when the cheesemongers started telling me about cheeses, particularly they'd say, oh, Tania, you need to have this cheese, you know, with a chocolate stout, or oh, Tania, this cheese loves cherry jam, I would take notes about, you know, things to pair with the cheese later, or if they told me interesting stories, I would write that down. And so I just began carrying this little cheese notebook everywhere. And then when I would eat the cheese, I would jot down my own observations about the aromas, the taste, what it would be good with. And, um, you know, I just found that that served me really well as a way to remember the cheeses, but also to go and look up the stories later. Mm. So I'm so glad you mentioned that because they're, they're one of the things I've moved around a lot recently. One thing I've never given away are all my little cheese notebooks, <laughs> and I still carry one around. <laughs> Very good. For those of you just joining us, I am speaking with Tanaya Darlington, otherwise known as Madame Fromage, and uh, her newest book is called Madame Fromage's Adventures in Cheese, How to Explore It, Pair it and love it from the creamiest breeze to the funkiest blues. Before we explore the book, you made passing reference to the fact that you uh, apparently originally were from Wisconsin, or at least you moved from Wisconsin to Philadelphia. If you don't mind my asking, uh, were you in sort of dairy country? It sounds like you were, and that that at least uh, the roots of your love of cheese have at least something to do with the time you lived uh, here in the dairy state. Absolutely. Well, I went to Beloit College. I studied writing. And then my I, then I went to graduate school in Indiana to study fiction. But I've moved back to Madison to write for Isthmus newspaper and run the food section and spent a lot of time at the farmer's market and interviewing chefs 
chefs and artisans, and that really inspired my love of cheese, 100%. I will say that my mother's also from Switzerland, so we had a cheese board every Sunday when I was growing up, along with uh, some Swiss chocolate, and that made a huge impression on me as a eater. Well, I just love the way that this book is put together, and early on you call it this, you say this book is a cheese adventure guide. (laughs) And I think that's just such a nice way to put it. You've laid it out in in four grand sections, and I think it makes uh, really lovely sense. Uh, Explain just in in brief what these four Mm -hmm. sections of the book are. Sure. The book takes you essentially through eight styles of cheese, starting with fresh cheeses. These would be like mozzarella or fresh goat cheeses, cheese without a rind. Then we move into our bloomy cheeses. Those are like your breeze. Then into stinkers, into cheddars. That's a whole chapter. Alpine cheeses, great mountain cheeses. We get into hard cheeses like your goudas, your pecorinos, flavored cheeses, blue cheeses. My goal was to demystify these different styles so that you can eat your way through each style, through each chapter with the pairings that go with that style of cheese. And then hopefully discover like the cheese styles that you really love. Like I love stinkers and blues. Those are like my two favorite chapters in the book. Um, And I think there's so much to be learned from sitting down and tasting a range of cheeses in a particular style. Like one of my favorite things to do is to host a cheddar party and invite people to bring cheddars from different countries, different states, different ages. Um, And you learn so much about the spectrum of cheddar flavors and textures and also what pairs well with cheddar when you do that. So that's the goal of the book, to to train people to become a bit of a cheesemonger in their own house and also to understand what's behind the different styles of cheese. Right. And uh, this is as good a time as any to mention the fact that uh, although in reading your book, we're, we're taken on what sort of amounts, in a sense, to a virtual uh, adventure through all these uh, different places, uh, that, that you have very literally gone to many places all over the world uh, to yeah, experience cheese in, in person. And, and, and among the things you, you mention in the book are, are the, the plethora of opportunities to, to go on these cheese tours and and it sounds like i mean one one could spend a whole lot of time and i suppose a whole lot of money as well i mean just exploring the different places around the globe where distinctive cheeses are created and to see it for yourself absolutely yeah that's been one of the great joys in life is being able to travel with cheese journeys the company i work with um to say is Somerset, England, which is the seat of great cheddar. And you go to Somerset and there's these wonderful cheddar makers. Cheddar Gorge is there, which is like the Grand Canyon of England, um, which is what cheddar is named after. So really getting to understand the history of that cheese or going to northern Italy to the Piedmont region where you've got beautiful Taleggio and Robiola and Gorgonzolas and, you know, all in the north. Um, uh, I love that in the way that some people will travel for wine, you know, they'll go to Burgundy or they'll go to Bordeaux. I love going to the cheese regions. And, um, you know, often there's wonderful things like ciders or beers to try there as well. And you see often that what grows together really does go together. Hmm. So 
And I also always recommend wherever you're traveling, look up the local cheese shop and start there. Go in and ask about regional cheeses, pick up some cheese to enjoy in your hotel or your Airbnb while you're there. And it's a nice way to get to know a place hmm. through the cheese. I really appreciate the fact that uh, for those of us who are much more beginners in all of this, uh, you do not neglect some of the the basics that are really helpful. I mean, oh good. So, so for instance, there there is a really nice section of the book called simply "How Cheese Is Made," in which you mm-hmm. you take us into the to the to the basic process by which cheese is made, although within that basic process, of course, are all kinds of variations. But this section of the book begins with three really intriguing words. Cheese is alive. Explain that, (laughs) how cheese is alive. Right. It's alive in the same way that sourdough bread starts with a sourdough starter or yogurt starts with a yogurt starter. So it starts with a culture that goes into the milk and feeds on it and essentially transforms something liquid into a solid um, and, you know, creates cheese. One thing that's cool about Wisconsin is there's so many cheese curds everywhere, which you just don't get in other parts of the world. People are often asking me, like, do you really eat cheese curds in Wisconsin? Because you don't see them uh, in other states or in even other countries. But cheese curds are the building blocks for cheese. They get packed into wheels, and then the wheels contain the enzymes from the cultures that break the cheese down. But cheese, even once it arrives in the store, you know, in the form of a wheel, it's still alive. It's still changing. It's ripening. Um, that's one of the things that makes it exciting. Mm. I especially uh, appreciate it as well uh, at, at the beginning of the book, a brief history of cheese making. And mm-hmm. it occurs to me that that this is probably not the easiest history to trace. I mean, in part because you have a history that is unfolding in different parts of the world in, in, in different ways and so on. And I was also astonished that this historical timeline is as long as it is. I mean, um, what would be what would be a couple of of interesting points about the history of cheese? And I guess wrapped up in that is also the question of of why did you feel it would be useful to the listener to have at least uh, a, a, a passing acquaintance with this uh, long historical timeline? Well, uh, once I started traveling in Europe. I just realized what an incredible history there was for cheese here and in many other parts of the world, too. But, for example, I went to the town, the village of Gouda, um, which, uh, you know, is a city in Holland where um, there just used to be a massive Gouda trade along the canals. And I thought, wow, people probably don't know that, like, the first mention of the word Gouda appears in the 1100s, like we think of it as just the sooner cheese you see on the grocery shelf, but it goes so far back. Or, um, you know, that uh, the taste buds were invented in the late 1800s. We take taste buds for granted, but uh, one of the things we enjoy about cheese are all the flavors that unfold to, on, our, on, our, on our tongues. And, and so just even dropping that into the timeline um, I thought was a fun detail. And then I also wanted to mention, like, in 2006, the very first all-American artisan cheese shop opened in New York, which, you know, is significant because America has a pretty young cheese culture, and most cheese counters 
carry a lot of European cheeses. There was a woman named Anne Saxelby who really championed American artisan cheese, and she opened the very first all-American cheese stand in Essex Market in New York City. So I wanted to put those sorts of things on the timeline to give people just a sense of the, the spectrum and all of the cool details that exist in the history of cheese. Right. I appreciate that your book, although uh, in so much of it is devoted to what, you know, in some ways we might think of as wondrous, exotic cheeses from all over the world, there is this wonderful moment early in the book when you talk about uh, the way in which a whole lot of people uh, encounter cheese and a whole lot of people probably never encounter cheese in, un- in any other way but in those cheese singles, I mean, in the little yeah. plastic <laughs> sleeves. And, right. uh, and I so appreciate what you have to say about this, including the fact uh, you say, uh, I'm not going to lie, there is something seductive about watching a processed cheese slice melt over a burger. But you go on to tell us a sobering fact. Singles do not contain actual cheese. So explain what, in fact, they do contain and if we should be thinking about these as cheese at all. Ah, good question. Well, I think a lot of industrial cheeses actually contain milk powders and oils and other things that um, allow something like a soft cheese to have a long shelf life. So while the singles might be something, um, you know, fun from childhood, and I, I say there's, al- there's always a, a, you know, a reason for any kind of cheese, even like a spray can of cheese while you're camping, right? Um, but it's not necessarily the, the truest definition of cheese. So at some point you have to move on. <laughs> For those of you who are just joining us, I'm speaking with um, Tanaya Darlington, also known as Madame Fromage, and we're talking about her terrific new book called Madame Fromage's Adventures in Cheese, How to Explore It, Pair It, and Love It from the Creamiest Breeze to the Funkiest Blues. One of the things we have not yet mentioned is that in addition to uh, the various adventures on which you you take us, um, you also introduce us to some individual people who are involved in the, the world of cheese uh, and, and, in, and in various ways. And uh, I, I so appreciate that, uh, that, these, uh, that these very personal encounters are, are part of this book. I think I want to have you explain uh, a, a particular woman who whose role in this is something that I, I had never even heard of until I read your book. So let's see, in the French, is it affiner? A-F-F-I-N-E-U-R? Yep, and so, affiner practices affinage, which rhymes with massage, and that's essentially the person who massages cheeses or cares for wheels of cheese once they have left uh, the cheesemaker or the cheesemaking room. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's its own little industry, the people who run cheese caves and, and age cheese or mature cheeses. And there's two uh, affineurs in the book. Uh, one is a woman named Betty Coster who ages, she's famous for aging Goudas. And another is a woman named Olivia Haver um, who has a great, gives her a great story about washing washed rind cheeses at Jasper Hill in Vermont. 
So I'm so glad you mentioned that because I wanted each of the chapters to introduce you to somebody in the industry, from cheesemongers to cheesemakers to affineurs, because I think when you pick up a cheese at the grocery, you don't think about all of the roles that go into making cheese, but it starts with you know, someone milking the cows and it ends with somebody you know affectionately caring for the cheese and packaging it and putting it on a truck and shipping it to you. Right. And by the way, in your book, you mentioned the fact that it makes all the difference in the world when the cows giving us uh, the milk uh, have been pasture raised and, and mm-hmm. that the, the, the quality of what those cows are eating has a whole lot to do with the quality of the cheese that will ultimately be created. And that's one reason why why some cheeses can be rather expensive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm so glad you picked up on that. Yeah, you're in Wisconsin, which is a great state for pasture-raised animals. And if you think about it, cows that are eating grass are essentially just you know eating chlorophyll, and that's what goes into the milk. So I would say a cheese is a plant-based food, um, and it's as close to a plant-based food as you can get. So when I go to the, the, the store, whether it's a grocery store or cheese shop, I'm often looking for, you know, grass-based or pasture-raised because I think it makes the best cheese. You also mentioned at one point in the book that, that milk, when it comes to making cheese, doesn't necessarily come from cows. There's goat milk, there's sheep mm-hmm. milk, there's water buffalo milk. And, yeah. uh, and I suppose that uh, if one is, is uh, starting with a different kind of milk, you're going to end up with a very different kind of cheese. Absolutely. Each of the, the milks have different levels of protein, different nutrients, different levels of butter fat, resulting in different textures and flavors. It's really fascinating. So I'm so glad you mentioned water buffalo because it's one of the richest milks. I've never seen a water buffalo being milked, but I'm told that the milk comes out looking almost like coconut milk. It's so thick and so rich. Wow. So it's one of my goals in life. <laughs> I want to give you uh, uh, just a minute or two to pick one of the eight specific cheese adventures on which you take the reader in your book, Adventures mm-hmm. in Cheese, uh, one that you think might be uh, especially enticing or, or interesting. Oh, sure. I love the, the Stinky Cheese Tour because it's a, a, an adventure that goes from mild too wild. So I suggest you start with something like a, a telegio, which is kind of, I think, mildly whiffy, and then get a few other cheeses leading up to a poisse, which is one of the stinkiest cheeses you can possibly get. Um, it comes in a balsa wood box. It's bright orange. It's from Burgundy, France. And to me, that cheese tastes almost like beef stew. You get these like braised meat notes, onions, garlic. (laughs) Some of my favorite cheeses to have in the winter, um, especially if you just, you know, you want to take a break from having a a roast or have a meatless meal night. Uh, And a poisse with some warm potatoes, some crusty bread, a good bottle of white burgundy or like a Belgian style beer is just a wonderful, wonderful dinner. You do want to open the windows and maybe have some incense handy. (laughs) Very good. Uh, In the third chapter called Entertain, you really share a whole lot of really interesting information, including how to taste cheese like a pro. And uh, one of the things you you mention either there or or elsewhere in this section of the book is how uh, many people who really know something about tasting cheese properly will do something called scrape the face. 
Explain what it means to scrape the face when one is about to uh, taste a potentially delectable piece of cheese. That's such a, I'm, you picked up on great things in the book. Yeah, you know, when cheese is wrapped in plastic, a little bit of that plastic kind of will, will uh, adhere to the cheese and affect the taste. And so at a really good cheese shop, they'll take off the plastic wrap, and the cheesemonger will just take a, a knife and scrape the, the, the cheese that was exposed to the plastic so that what you're tasting is a really fresh um, bit of that cheese. Uh, that's one of the marks of a great cheese shop is that they scrape hmm. the face. You... And you can do that at home as well. If you have a cheese that's been shrink-wrapped and you don't know how long it's been in the wrapping for a while, the first bite closest to the plastic, if you'll notice, uh, it tastes a little bit like the plastic. So you can just cut that off or scrape the face of the cheese, and it'll be a much more pleasurable bite for your guests. And there's a section of this of this part of the book that uh, is on how to care for your cheeses at home, which gives all kinds of, of very, very helpful information on where to store your cheese and, and, and so on. Um, I want to make sure to uh, give you a chance to talk briefly about uh, a section of the book, which is called A Template for a Great Cheese Board. And, of course, there are a whole lot of people who just do this all the time and have you know, probably done it for years, and others who are just sort of waking up to the wonderful possibilities of setting before company a beautiful, wonderful uh, cheese board. Your template is so intriguing because you, you suggest, I mean, this is one way to do it anyway, to, mm-hmm. you can put together a great cheese board with three different cheeses that are, in a sense, each from a different category. And I just love this idea. Uh, oh, good. Yeah, tell our listeners about this. Sure. Well, most cheese people will recommend, you know, if for a cheese board, choose, you know, cheeses of different milks. And for years I did that. But I feel like after a while you want to, you know, find a different formula for a cheese board. So one that I came up with that I love is you pick a comfort cheese. So that's a cheese you know and love. It might be a Gouda or a cheddar. But maybe each time you put out this cheese, you pick a different brand or a different age. So you start with a comfort cheese. Then you have a conversation piece. And that's a cheese that stands out to you at the cheese counter. Maybe it's rolled in an interesting herb. Maybe it's wrapped in bark, like Rush Creek from Wisconsin right now, which I think is such a beautiful conversation cheese. Um, or it's a cheese wrapped in leaves. But it, there's something intriguing going on. Maybe it's marinated in booze. And then your third cheese should be from close by. So something local or regional to showcase your state or your farmer's market. So I think that's a nice way to grow your cheese knowledge, keep your cheese lovers who you're inviting over interested, support the cheese economy, even locally, a comfort cheese, a conversation piece, and then something close or local. Thanks so much for pointing that one out. Right. And uh, and there's many more ideas that you share in the book on how you can put these cheese boards together to not only offer up deliciousness, but also to be visually exciting and, and, and appealing. Um, just to finish out, I want to ask you about something that I have been curious about for such a long time, and that is the fact that, as I said at the outset, it, it took a long time before I would really just pop room temperature or cold cheese into my mouth, but always I have loved you know macaroni and cheese and mm. cheese fondue and nachos, and, 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 and to me... Melted cheese was a completely different experience than just a piece of cheese. And I just wonder, does something happen to cheese when it is heated, when it is melted? 
Definitely. And some cheeses melt better than other cheeses, as you've probably noticed. Like a, a sheep's milk cheese just gets really oily, for example, like Manchego is not a good melter. But something like um, the Alpine cheeses tend to be really great melters. If, usually if they have some elasticity, a cheese will be a great melter. So mm. like raclette, a wonderful cheese made in Switzerland and France, is just – it's a a genius melter of a cheese. Even like a Monterey Jack, you see that it's very flexible when you cut a slice. Any of those very flexible cheeses tend to be wonderful, wonderful melters. Hmm. Well, I uh, am glad to say that I have uh, entered this world of, of cheese uh, a, a bi- in a big way. At least I've stepped away from macaroni and cheese and to enjoy a, a, a much wider array of cheeses. And your book excites me uh, and inspires me to want to further that journey. And I know uh, our listeners uh, are, are, are probably enticed as well uh, to uh, make some exploration of their own. And uh, you can be their guide with this lovely new book called Madame Fromage's Adventures in Cheese, How to Explore It, Pair It, and Love It from the Creamiest Breeze to the Funkiest Blues. And we've really just skimmed the surface in terms of all that is to be found in this book, published by Workman Publishing. The author, Tania Darlington, Madame Fromage herself. Thank you so much for uh, joining me uh, today on The Morning Show, and thank you for giving the world this really terrific book. Thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure.